guesses yet. I will give you a clue. No, but that's in the right era. It's someone we've heard from recently. Henry Purcell. Yes. Good job, Doc. So this is a little known. Uh, it's not exactly an opera. It's not exactly a cantata, but it's about King Arthur. We are going to begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to gather in your name this evening. Lord, we all come from busy days with lots of different things on our minds. We pray that you would open our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to hear the truth from your word tonight, and that we would be able to understand what Lewis is up to in this book and how it reflects the truth of the things of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit this evening. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we are uh, going to be in chapter 5. I just want to point out that I did get all the way through chapter 4 last week in one session, and uh, that was a little bit of a surprise to me, but I'm glad that it worked out, and I hope we'll manage to get through chapter 5 tonight. Uh, if you are reading along, one of the things you will notice is that the action is heating up in the story, and uh, there are lots of interesting things that are going on. So, uh, we are going to begin, as usual, uh, by saying our theme verse together. So, if you would join me in saying this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So a word of welcome to anyone who is new tonight, either in person or on the live stream. Um, for those who are new, there are three approaches to this class. Uh, you can be on the beach, where you just appear when you feel like it, uh, you don't necessarily read anything, you pay attention when you feel like it, and you might get something through osmosis, and if that's all you want to do, that is perfectly fine. Or you can snorkel, which means uh, on the parts that are interesting, uh, you read the handouts, you look up the links that I send in the email, or you can scuba dive, which means you read all the handouts, you look at all the links, you read all the words of the songs and everything else that I send in the uh, weekly emails. And whichever level you want to be at is all great. Uh, if you are not on the email list, if you're here in person, please sign up at the little table over there. Or if you're on the live stream, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and uh, look for me on there, and you can shoot me an email and I'll get you added. So we continue to have people each week joining and people from around the country and other countries, which is uh, a lot of fun. So uh, what we're going to do is keep progressing through this book, and one of the things I want to keep in front of you each week is the idea that all that work we did at the beginning trying to understand the abolition of man, don't let that go to waste, because all of those themes that we were talking about and struggling with back then are showing up in this story now, and the more that you see them expressed in this fictional context, the more you'll be able to understand them. So a couple of those themes from Abolition of Man, the first one in Men Without Chest, the importance of objective values and the poison of subjectivism. Subjectivism being there's no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as goodness, there's no such thing as beauty, it's just all my opinion. And then secondly, the Tao or the way or the natural law, the law of human behavior, um, that governs all people over all time. 
And then the abolition of man, the idea that when we hear people talking about controlling nature through science and taking control of the world for man, uh, that really what that means is taking control, some men taking control to exert that control over others. So in this trilogy of books, the first one out of the silent planet is a space trip to Mars uh, where a Cambridge professor is kidnapped to be taken to Mars as a human sacrifice. He escapes, fortunately, and uh, he is going to show up uh, later in our story. We haven't met him yet. And then Paralandra is a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve, but reimagined on Venus without the fall having happened. And then the one we're in, That Hideous Strength, uh, is a very interesting mix of the themes of the abolition of man with some commentary on academia, uh, with some spiritual warfare and Arthurian legend and dystopian fantasy all thrown into the blender. So lots of things going on. The title, again, That Hideous Strength is from a medieval poem about the Tower of Babel. The idea being that man without God trying to be in charge of the world is something that goes way back in human history and it has never ended well. Uh, and Lewis talks about the fact that this is a tall story about devilry and I want to just keep emphasizing that because Lewis is a big believer in the reality of spiritual warfare, the reality of Satan, and for an Oxford professor to talk about the devil in print uh, back in the 1940s was just shocking. Um, I'm going to skip the character list because it's all the same folks this week. Um, quick review of the earlier chapters. Chapter 1, um, we're introduced to Jane Studdock, who is a modern woman uh, in the idea that she wants to be a career woman and every bit the equal or superior of her husband. Um, she is, in her view, afflicted with these dreams that she has that are dreams of um, actual things that are happening, very disturbing to her. Her husband, Mark, is an academic at a college that has no students, something that's peculiarly British, uh, where there is a foundation um, that was supposed to spend its money to have this faculty thinking great thoughts and praying for the soul of the founder. Of course, they've abandoned prayer um, hundreds of years before this story, and they're just about feathering their own nest. And this college owns one of the most ancient and beautiful sites in all of England, and they start off in this chapter talking about selling this land to this group called the Nice. How could you be against the Nice? Such a nice name. And then we have the Dumbles, who are another couple that we meet, um, who are people who Jane knew when she was in college, a professor and his wife. So we get into chapter two, and Mark this junior academic on the faculty is thrilled because he has been invited to dinner with the dean and the college uh, higher-ups. And so he is thrilled that he is being drawn into this inner circle. And then he is drawn even further in by Lord Feverstone, saying they would like for him to come interview at the nice, such a nice place, um, and that the purpose of the nice is really important. Uh, taking over the human race, controlling and subduing nature, and exerting control over the interplanetary wars. Of course, Mark doesn't understand any of that. And then we see Jane um, falling apart one night after having a terrifying dream and being very dependent on her husband for emotional support, and then the next morning waking up and being horrified that she had actually been vulnerable and had acted like a human being. Uh, and so she's horribly embarrassed and very angry at herself, which she takes out on her husband. And then there's this beautiful segment that we unpacked of Mark and Lord Feverstone hurrying toward the nice in a sports car where they're literally running over people and animals in the street in their hurry to get there and Jane taking a slow train through some of the most beautiful and bucolic parts of the English countryside with names that are redolent of spiritual truth, 
um, heading toward the community of St. Anne's, which is surrounded by crosses and a church. And so Lewis is making very clear that their paths are diverging. So then we get to chapter 3. We see what happens when Mark goes to the nice, and he is surrounded by doublespeak. It is all of this talking and talking and talking without saying anything. And it really is quite funny when you take a step back from it because he thinks he's going for a job interview. And he keeps trying to ask, well, what's the job? And no one will tell him. And they won't say whether they're going to offer him a job. The whole thing is just like um, no communication happening at all. But it is very much like what we see in a lot of press conferences and advertising promotions these days where there are lots of words, but you get to the end of it and think, did they actually say anything? And so that is going to be a theme that is going to continue through this. Jane goes on to St. Anne's, and she is met there by a woman named Grace Ironwood who uh, tells her that her dreams are a great gift. And Jane does not see it that way. She wants, She thinks she needs to be cured of these dreams. So she is very frustrated and very frustrated that they want her to talk about those dreams because she has a horror of being interfered with, of losing her independence in any way. So Mark then meets one of the more curious characters in the story, Fairy Hardcastle, um, who is a big, very masculine woman who wears um, sort of creepy makeup and clothing um, and is head of the nice secret police, which is sort of an oxymoron. If you were nice, why would you need secret police? But she talks to Mark about the role of the secret police and how Mark might have a role with that. Jane, meanwhile, thinks all the way home from St. Anne's about how terrible it is to be married, how much she had to give up in getting married to Mark, how much he doesn't appreciate it, how much he does not appreciate her. And then right at the end of the story, she gets a call from Mother Dumble, who lives in one of these absolutely beautiful old stone thatched roof cottages on the edge of Bracton. And Mother Dumble says that uh, all of these bulldozers and trucks have arrived and told her that they're going to destroy her home and she has to be out by 8 the next morning. So that brought brings us to chapter four, the liquidation of anachronisms. An anachronism, of course, is something that doesn't belong um, from the wrong time period. And so the nice thinks pretty much everything uh, that there is should be liquidated as an anachronism. So the nice is turning people out of their homes um, and destroying the beauty of Edgestow. Bell Hingist, who is one of the faculty at Bracton who'd gone on to the NICE, one of the few uh, world-renowned scientists who had announced he was going to leave the NICE. He's suddenly found murdered in the night on the night that he leaves the NICE. Mark has a very strange conversation with the mad parson of the NICE uh, who has taken a very clearly very bad course in liberation theology uh, and is all about uh, the fact that the, the gospel is about power and it's about violence and using power and violence to overthrow society and establish what he believes to the, be the kingdom of God on this earth and that there's no such thing as anything beyond this life. Uh, not very orthodox theology. And then Mark is assigned a propaganda project and if you were reading carefully earlier on, you'll remember Mark was very resistant to the idea of doing any kind of writing because he really looks down on journalists and he thinks of himself as being this great intellectual scientist. So how demeaning to be told to write memos and stories and things like that. So he is quite annoyed, but he also feels like maybe this is a hoop he has to jump through, that it's a test to be able to get into the inner circle of the nice. So he's supposed to do this propaganda about destroying the village of Cure Hardy, which is one of the great tourist attractions of England. 
as being one of the most beautiful ancient villages that there is. And what the Nice wants to do is to take the Wend River, which uh, is very inefficient because it has bends in it. So the Nice is all about efficiency. So they're going to make the river straight and get rid of all those bends. And so they're going to tear up all of the metal of Edgestow to do that. And then for it to go straight, they have to just completely demolish Cure Hardy, this village that's so beautiful, because it's in the way of what they want to do. So they're going to demolish this old village, and they're going to build a new and very sanitary village on a different site a few miles away. And they believe they're doing everyone a big favor by doing that. But Mark is um, horrified by this idea. And part of him starts reacting against the nice and thinking that these people are not the kind of people he wants to be with. But then the lore of the inner ring starts again, and he forgets all that. So meanwhile, the fellows of Bracton College, the faculty, are having a faculty meeting in their lovely faculty commons room, which is uh, in this ancient building that has a big, beautiful window that looks out over the river and the gardens out to the woods. And while they're having the meeting, they start hearing all of this noise. And there are bulldozers and cranes and lots and lots of people and the clank of metal. And then all of a sudden, they start hearing machine guns. And they call for the police. And as they are calling for the police, uh, all of a sudden, rocks and perhaps bullets come crashing through. And this huge, beautiful, ancient window is completely destroyed. And they are cowering, trying to avoid being hit by the glass shards flying through the air. So that brings us to chapter five, elasticity, which has nothing to do with spandex, uh, but you will see uh, what it does have to do with as we go through this chapter. So uh, the brief summary here. So Mark discovers that this report he's been working on, the propaganda, is just a hobby for the guy who asked him to do it. And so he feels deeply disrespected and immediately decides he's going to go see the deputy director, this guy Weather, who runs the NICE. And he just decides he's going to go in there and he's going to get everything clear about his job and whether he's working there or not. And he bursts into the office, which is uh, highly inappropriate and shocking that he does that, and goes in and Weather is in a meeting with someone else and all he gets from Weather is more befuddling doublespeak, and he keeps being called, oh, my dear fellow. But every time Mark says something, the response he gets is as if, as if the guy has heard nothing that he said. And finally, he ends the appointment and says, make an appointment with my secretary. So Mark is very frustrated, and there's nothing he can do but come back the next morning. So he goes out and he runs into Fairy Hardcastle from the secret police and he tells her how frustrated he is and that he has to find out what his job is or he's going to leave the nice. So Fairy Hardcastle grabs him by the arm and takes him much against his will and to his horror and embarrassment in front of all the other people. This policewoman is leading him away, which is very embarrassing. But they get to her office, and she has drinks brought in, even though it's the morning. And the fairy advises Mark not to bother this deputy director anymore, and that his position, of course, he doesn't know what his position is, because he's never been told whether he has one, and if he does have one, what he's supposed to do. But whatever that position is, is secure, mm -hmm. as long as the deputy director's on his side, which he is. But he won't be if Mark keeps bothering him. Mark replies he just wants to make everything clear. And the fairy responds that the deputy director hates to make anything clear and that he runs the place by not making anything clear. And there, we could spend a lot of time on that, but that is a management style of basically just telling everyone what they want to hear and then just seeing what happens. And uh, that's very much what's going on. Truth is one of the big casualties in that kind of environment, um, and it's a great way to keep everyone disoriented all the time. So Mark is not very happy about this, and 
uh, this whole idea of the way the deputy director runs things, and he just keeps complaining to the fairy that he just wants to know what he's supposed to do. So the fairy offers him more work writing propaganda, and this is interesting because she actually says the word propaganda, uh, that it is propaganda that he's going to be working on, and what he's supposed to do is write fake articles and fake letters to the editor as part of the plan of the nice to rehabilitate the image of Alcasan, the Arabian radiologist executed by beheading for poisoning his wife. So remember, Alcasan is a horrible, murderous criminal, but he's being remade, the nice is going to remake him into this paragon of virtue. They're going to remake him into someone that you should look up to and that you should honor because of how wonderful he was. Um, and Mark is the one who is going to write the articles to do this. And so Mark is very upset, and he says, but I'm a sociologist. And he's so proud of the fact he's a sociologist, and Ferry couldn't care less, and says, the only type of sociology the NICE has any use for is the police department. So Mark is not cooperating. The fairy gets quite angry and ends their conversation in such a way that Mark feels he's been excluded from this inner ring that he's so desperate to get into. So Mark suffers through a long evening and then the next morning goes to the deputy director's office for his appointment. And he goes in and he just gets more doublespeak with effusive praise and lots of hedging language and being told that they most certainly want him at the nice, but the deputy director says, but of course, I don't have the authority to offer you a position. Well, what does that mean? So Mark is not very happy about that. And Wither ends the meeting without answering a single one of the questions that Mark has raised. And what's really terrible in Mark's view is right before Wither calls the meeting to an end because the mail has come and he's much more interested in looking at the mail than talking to Mark. He is distracted looking at the mail and then he looks up at Mark and he says, you're Stuttuck, right? He doesn't even know who he is. So Mark is not very happy about this. So meanwhile, Mark gets some mail, and he has gotten a letter from the college dean saying they were sad to learn from Feverstone that Mark has resigned as a fellow. Well, Mark hasn't resigned as a fellow, or at least he doesn't think he has. So now he thinks, okay, I don't know if I have a job at the NICE. I think I've lost my job at the college. This is not good. So Mark sends a reply letter saying he's planning to return to Bracton. So Mark then sees Feverstone, who's the guy that told the college that Mark was resigning, and he asked Feverstone to sort everything out because Feverstone created the mess. And Feverstone, who is a very powerful guy, remember, he's the um, sort of evil character that bought himself a lordship and is in good with some of the people in the cabinet. Feverstone gets very angry at Mark and tells Mark not to antagonize him or anyone else at the nice and uh, tells him to go to hell. So that's probably not a good way to end a job interview. So Mark is pretty convinced he's not going to have a job at either place and that Jane is going to be horrified. Remember, he and Jane have this very competitive relationship where they're trying to outdo each other in terms of which one has more professional success. So meanwhile, Jane is at home, and she's been invited to a picnic by Camilla Denniston and her husband, who are old friends that they used to get along with, but then Mark sort of left them behind because they were not part of the inner ring. So during the lunch, they tell her that they live at St. Anne's, the place where uh, Jane had gone about her dream. So she's sort of shocked to hear that because they seem to be normal people that she likes and she finds attractive. And so uh, they tell her more about it and say they belong to this community that's run by Mr. Fisher King, who's a renowned man, incapacitated by a wounded heel. There's a lot going on right there. 
Um, and the Denistons urge Jane to join them and to use her gift for the good of all. And they say if she doesn't do that, she's going to fall into the hands of their enemies who will use her gift to promote evil. Well, Jane doesn't know what to think about all this. All she wants is to be left alone, but she's conflicted because she likes the Denistons. And so she's disturbed by this idea that she would have to submit, ooh, what a bad word, submit to this man, Mr. Fisher King. And so she's horrified by that idea. But then they say, you would have to get your husband's permission. Well, when they tell her that she would have to get her husband's permission, she just blows a gasket. She can't believe how old-fashioned, how antediluvian, how misogynistic, how ridiculous, and she won't have any part of it. And it also goes right into that whole horror she has about being interfered with and not remaining independent. So she says, I will not join you, but she does sort of grudgingly say that if she has any more dreams, she'll tell them about it. So there's a lot that goes on. That's just a brief summary. But I want to hit some of the key passages because we have some new themes that are arising in this chapter. So here we go. Next morning, Mark went back to Belbury by train. He'd promised his wife to clear up a number of points about his salary and place of residence, and the memory of all these promises made a little cloud of uneasiness in his mind. But on the whole, he was in good spirits. The return to Belbury, just sauntering in, hanging up his hat, and ordering a drink was a pleasant contrast to his first arrival. The servant who brought the drink knew him. Philostrato nodded to him. Women would fuss, but this was clearly the real world. So there's a lot going on here. This is Mark being played, his ego being played, the fact that the servant knows his name, that makes him feel like he's part of the inner ring and therefore his life has meaning and value and purpose and is real, um, which obviously is a misapprehension. Um, he is so lured by this inner ring, and he's made these crazy promises to Jane. Remember, he doesn't even know if he has a job, let alone what the job title is, and he's promised that he's going to find out about his salary and where they're going to have him live. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, so this is a very false notion of what's real. And that theme of what's real is going to be really major as we walk through the rest of this book. So uh, this is the next little interview uh, right after Mark has had his first meeting with Weather that was very unsatisfactory. So he comes out in the hall. Hello, Stuttock, said the fairy, hanging around the DD's office. That won't do, you know. I've decided, said Mark, that I must either get my position definitely fixed once and for all or else leave the Institute. She looked at him with an ambiguous expression in which amusement seemed to predominate. Then she suddenly slipped her arm through his. Look, Sonny, she said, you drop all that, see? It isn't going to do you any good. You come along and have a talk with me. Cut it all out, Stuttock, said Miss Hardcastle, and whatever you do, don't go bothering the DD. I told you before, you needn't worry about all these little third-floor people, provided you've got him on your side, which you have at present, but you won't have if you keep on going to him with complaints. That might be very good advice, Miss Hardcastle, said Mark, if I were committed to staying here at all, but I'm not, and from what I've seen, I don't like the place. I very nearly made up my mind to go home, only I thought I'd just have a talk with him first to make everything clear. Making things clear is the one thing the DD can't stand, replied Miss Hardcastle. That's not how he runs the place. And mind you, he knows what he's about. It works, Sonny. You have no idea yet how well it works. As for leaving, you're not superstitious, are you? I am. I don't think it's lucky to leave the nice. You needn't bother your head about all the steels and cossers. That's part of your apprenticeship. You're being put through it at the moment. But if you hold on, you'll come out above them. All you've got to do is sit tight. Not one of them is going to be left when we get going. So you see this doublespeak and ambiguity is just all over the place. But the lure of power, that Mark will sacrifice any principle, he will sacrifice any amount of mistreatment, 
for the idea that he is going to be part of that inner ring, that those people that annoy him on the third floor, that he's going to be above them. And all of his indignation and determination to quit, it goes right out the window when he hears that, oh, this is just something to sit tight and get through, and then you'll be one of the cool people. So, a little later on in the same chapter, Miss Hardcastle again. No good, Sonny, said Miss Hardcastle, shaking her head. You haven't yet realized what you're in on. You're being offered a chance of something far bigger than a seat in the cabinet. Well, that should get his attention. And there are only two alternatives, you know, either to be in the nice or to be out of it. And I know better than you which is going to be most fun. I do understand that, said Mark, who of course understands nothing. But anything is better than being nominally in and having nothing to do. Give me a real place in the sociological department and I'll, rats, that whole department's going to be scrapped. It had to be there at the beginning for propaganda purposes, but they're all going to be weeded out. But what assurance have I that I'm going to be one of their successors? You're not. They're not going to have any successor. The real work has nothing to do with all these departments. The kind of sociology we're interested in will be done by my people, the police. Now, any normal, reasonable person would raise their hands and run screaming out the door at this point. But he is so lured by this, and a lot of it is, you've heard me use an analogy of the frog in the kettle syndrome before, and you know that for those of you that don't know that analogy, if you take a frog and put him in a big pot of cold water, he'll just swim around and you can turn the burner on underneath it and gradually turn up the heat and eventually the frog will boil to death. Whereas if you have a pot full of boiling water and you throw the frog in it, he'll jump right out. So the idea is that Mark has gotten so used to this sort of thing that he can't see how totally wacko and evil everything that he's surrounded by actually is. And the other thing that you should notice here is how all of what the nice has been up to so far is built on the foundation of propaganda. And in case you forgot, um, the definition of propaganda is that it is uh, most always lies. Every occasionally there may be an element of truth, but it is most usually lies and the whole way the NICE is structured, even the departments, the corporate structure, it's all a facade to cover up what they're really up to. And the control of it is going to be in the hands of secret police. That should be disturbing. So, then we go back to this idea of what Mark's propaganda project is. Alcasan said Miss Hardcastle between her teeth, She'd started one of her interminable dry smokes, then glancing at Mark with a hint of contempt. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? You mean the radiologist, the man who was guillotined? Asked Mark, who was completely bewildered. The fairy nodded. He's to be rehabilitated, she said, gradually. I've got all the facts in the dossier. You begin with a quiet little article, not questioning his guilt, not at first, but just hinting that of course he was a member of their quizzling government and there was a prejudice against him. Say so you don't doubt the verdict was just, but it's disquieting to realize that it would almost certainly have been the same even if he'd been innocent. Then you followed up in a day or two with an article of quite a different kind, popular account of the value of his work. You can mug up the facts enough for that kind of article in an afternoon. Then a letter rather indignant to the paper that printed the first article and going much further. The execution was a miscarriage of justice. By that time, what on earth is the point of all this, said Mark. I'm telling you, Static, Alcasan is to be rehabilitated, made into a martyr, an irreparable loss to the human race. But what for? There you go again. You grumble about being given nothing to do. And as soon as I suggest a bit of real work, you expect to have the whole plan of campaign told you before you do it. It doesn't make sense. That's not the way to get on here. The great thing is to do what you're told. Hmm. Do what you're told. If you 
seem to realize, you don't seem to realize, I'm sorry, I just lost my place because I'm so enamored of do what you told. If you turn out to be any good, you'll soon understand what's going on. But you've got to begin by doing the work. You don't seem to realize what we are. We're an army. That should get his attention. Anyway, said Mark, I'm not a journalist. I didn't come here to write newspaper articles. I tried to make that clear to Feverstone at the very beginning. The sooner you drop all that talk about what you came here to do, the better you'll get on. I'm speaking for your own good, Stuttick. You can write. That's one of the things you're wanted for. So there is a lot that should be profoundly disturbing right there. So first of all, they're an army. Now, armies uh, are formed for violence and battle, usually. Uh, and this whole idea of rehabilitating somebody who was known to be evil, somebody who murdered his wife, somebody of the most dubious, horrible reputation, who was considered bad enough to uh, be guillotined, um, is shocking. But notice, Mark doesn't ask any questions about any of the evil of this. All he is concerned about is, I am not a journalist. I am not a journalist. I deserve respect. And he's not even caring about all of this major evil that she's describing right in front of him. He doesn't have any problem with that. He would love to have more responsibility for it. So it just shows several things. First, um, that propaganda is something that is dangerous and that there can be misuse of the media um, to create propaganda and to make heroes out of people who are evil. Um, this whole idea of calling evil good, um, which is quite shocking, and then this demand for unquestioned obedience. No questions allowed. You don't need to understand what you're doing. You need to just do it. And this, of course, remember, part of the backdrop of this is the horrors of Nazi Germany. This is being written in 1943. So all of those kinds of things of unquestioned obedience leading to horrors are actually happening right across the English Channel. Um, so Mark is not being a shining example of the way to respond to these kinds of circumstances because he is all about himself. Have you noticed Mark thinking at all about right and wrong? No. This is the poison of subjectivism, men without chests. Um, he has no moral compass at all. So then this next part uh, is really creepy. So here we go. I'd want to know a good deal more about the politics of the nice before I went in for that sort of thing. Haven't you been told that it's strictly non-political? I've been told so many things, I don't know whether I'm on my head or heels, said Mark, but I don't see how one's going to start a newspaper stunt, which is about what this comes to, without being political. Is it left or right papers that are going to print all this rot about Alcasan? Both, honey, both, said Miss Hardcastle. Don't you understand anything? Isn't it absolutely essential to keep a fierce left and a fierce right, both on their toes and each terrified of the other? That's how we get things done. Any opposition to the nice is represented as a left racket in the right papers and a right racket in the left papers. If it's properly done, you get each side outbidding the other in support of us to refute the enemy slanders. Of course we're non-political. The real power always is. I don't believe you can do that, said Mark, not with the papers that are read by educated people. That shows you're still in the nursery, lovey, said Miss Hardcastle. Haven't you yet realized it's the other way around? How do you mean? Why, you fool, it's the educated reader who can be gulled. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. He buys his paper for the football results and the little paragraphs about girls falling out of windows and corpses found in Mayfair flats. He is our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public, 
The people who read the highbrow weeklies don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. So that may sound like it bears more than a passing resemblance to some of what we see going on in the media climate in our own world right now. But what you see here is this whole idea of propaganda for a cause being used to completely corrupt the media system of a country. And this manipulation and domination of the media to divide and conquer the country, to divide and conquer the people, claiming all along that it's non-political, but f using the different forces against each other by making each side a caricature. And so the problem of the honest workman uh, is the little guy who doesn't believe all of this, who doesn't trust the media elites, and is trying to stand up for what he has always thought um, his country stood for versus the educated class who are ready to buy into whatever fad there might be out there. So Mark then goes in for his next meeting with Wither. Mark was admitted at once, but the conversation was not easy to begin because Wither said nothing. And though he looked up as soon as Mark entered with an expression of dreamy courtesy, he did not look exactly at Mark, nor did he ask him to sit down. The room, as usual, was extremely hot, and Mark, divided between his desire to make it clear that he had fully resolved not to be left hanging about, oh, sorry, that he'd fully resolved to be left hanging about no longer, and his equally keen desire not to lose the job if there were any real job going, did not perhaps speak very well. At all events, the deputy director left him to run down, to pass into disjointed repetitions, and thence into complete silence. That silence lasted for some time. Withers sat with his lips pouted and slightly open, as though he were humming a tune. So I think, sir, I'd better go, said Mark at last, with vague reference to what he'd been saying. You are Mr. Studdock, I think, said Wither tentatively after another prolonged silence. So just envision this. Mark walks into the office for his appointment. The guy that's the head of the place is sitting in his chair, sort of gazing off into the distance, and he just sits there, doesn't say anything. So Mark launches into his whole speech about how he needs to know what his position is. He needs to know whether he has a job. He needs to know what the responsibilities are. And he gets absolutely no response. The guy just keeps looking off into the distance. And finally, Mark runs out of things to say and is just standing there looking totally stupid and inept. And then finally, the deputy director looks at him and says, you are Mr. Studdock, I think. Could there be anything more devastating to Mark's career hopes? So Mark has uh, had it made very clear, perhaps unintentionally, that Weather doesn't really know anything about him and doesn't really care. So despite that, uh, look what Mark does. Yes, said Mark impatiently, I called on you with Lord Feverstone a few days ago. You gave me to understand that you were offering me a position on the sociological side of the nice. But as I was saying, one moment, Mr. Studdock, interrupted the deputy director, it is so important to be perfectly, cl perfectly clear what we are doing. There's a little irony there. You are no doubt aware that in certain senses of the words, it would be most unfortunate to speak of my offering anyone a post in the Institute. You must not imagine for a moment that I hold any kind of autocratic position, nor on the other hand that the relation between my own sphere of influence and the powers, I'm speaking of their temporary powers, you understand, of the permanent committee of those of the director himself are defined by any hard and fast system of what or one might call a constitutional or even constitutive character. What? For example, uh, then, sir, can you tell me whether anyone has offered me a post and if so, who? Oh, said Withers suddenly, changing both his position and his tone, as if a new idea had struck him. Oh, there's never been the least question of that sort. It was always understood that your cooperation with the Institute would be entirely acceptable, would be of the greatest value. Well, what does that mean? Your cooperation with the Institute would be entirely acceptable. Is that a job? 
So more and more doublespeak, complete failure to take responsibility and refusal to take responsibility. And you'll notice this is going to be a theme that continues. Everything that the nice does, they refuse to take responsibility for. They say, well, we didn't do that, or we didn't make that happen. Other people did that. We are just trying to carry out our program, and they refuse to take responsibility. So Mark is now deeply worried. If he were not inside at Bellberry, and it began to look as if he were not, was he still in Feverstone's confidence? If he had to go back to Bracton, would he find he retained even his old status there? Could he go to Bracton? Yes, of course. He must write a letter at once explaining he had not really resigned and would not resign his fellowship. Then another thought struck him. A letter to Curry saying plainly he meant to stay at Bracton would be shown to Feverstone. Feverstone would tell whether such a letter could be regarded as a refusal of any post at Bellberry. The whole thing might have been arranged simply to let him fall between the two stools kicked out of Bellberry because he was retaining the Bracton Fellowship and kicked out of Bracton because he was supposed to be taking a job at Bellberry. Then he and Jane left to sink or swim without a, with not a sou between them, perhaps with Feverstone's influence against him when he tried to get another job. And where was Feverstone? Obviously, he must play his cards very carefully. He rang the bell and ordered a large whiskey. At home, he would not have, yeah, this is like 10 o'clock in the morning. At home, he would not have drunk till 12, and even then would have drunk only beer. But now, in any way, he felt curiously chilly. So there's a lot going on here, but one of the main themes that you see here is the danger of unhealthy ambition, especially when it is coupled with the lure of the inner ring. Mark has really made a mess of his professional life. Um, if he had any principles, which we're not really sure he does, um, they've been completely compromised by this point. So then he has this dreadful conversation with Feverstone. And if you haven't read this part, go back and read it, because it is uh, quite uh, devilish the way it all comes out. Feverstone's smile brightened and widened. It doesn't make any odds, you know, he said. If the nice want you to have a nominal job somewhere outside Belberry, you'll have one. And if they don't, you won't. Just like that. Damn the nice. I'm merely trying to retain the fellowship I already had, which is no concern of theirs. One doesn't want to fall between two stools. One doesn't want to. Take my advice and get into Weathers' good books again as soon as you can. I gave you a good start, but you seem to have rubbed him up the wrong way. His attitude has changed since this morning. You need to humor him, you know. And just between ourselves, I wouldn't be too thick with the fairy. It won't do you any good higher up. There are wheels within wheels. In the meantime, said Mark, I've written to Curry to explain that it's all rot about my resignation. And that's why I must rely on you to get that idea out of Curry's head. Feverstone said nothing. You will be sure, urged Mark against his unbetter judgment, to make it quite clear clear to him that the whole thing was a misunderstanding. Well, damn it all, Feverstone, it was you who first put the idea into his head. Do you know, said Feverstone, helping himself to a muffin, I find your style of conversation rather difficult. You will come up for a re-election re in a few months. The college may decide to re-elect you, or of course, it may not. As far as I can make out, you are at present attempting to canvas my vote in advance, to which the proper answer is the one I now give. Go to hell. You make me rather tired, he said. If you don't know how to steer your own course in a place like Bracton, why come and pester me? I'm not a bucking nurse. And for your own good, I would advise you, in talking to people here, to adopt a more agreeable manner than you're using now. Otherwise, your life may be, in the famous words, nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Short, said Mark. Is that a threat? Do you mean my life at Bracton or at the Nice? I shouldn't stress the distinction too much if I were you, said Feverstone. I shall remember that, said Mark, rising from his chair. As he made to move away, he could not help turning to the smiling man once again and saying, it was you who brought me here. I thought you at least were my friend. 
incurable romantic, said Lord Feverstone, deftly extending his mouth to an even wider grin and popping the muffin into it entire. And thus Mark knew that if he lost the Belbury job, he would lose his fellowship at Bracton as well. So, not a nice place to be if you're Mark Studdock. Uh, and you will see here that there seems to be some conspiracy going on in the background. There is evil. Um, just think about the way Feverstein is grinning through all of this and seeming to enjoy it. And this coercive power, the threat, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, and he still doesn't even know if he has a job. So, yeah, not so great. So then we get over to Jane. Jane is having a very interesting time. On one of these occasions, she was delighted to find herself suddenly addressed by Camilla Denniston. Camilla had just stepped out of a car, and next moment she introduced a tall, dark man as her husband. Jane saw at once that both the Dennisons were the sort of people she liked. She knew Mr. Denniston had once been a friend of Mark's, but she'd never met him. And her first thought was to wonder, as she'd wondered before, why Mark's present friends were so inferior to those he once had. Curry and, and Wadston and the Taylors, who had all been members of the set in which she first got to know him, had been nicer than Curry and Busby, not to mention that Feverstone man. And this Mr. Denniston was obviously much nicer indeed. And so here, just a note, ambition's really negative effect on friendship when you start thinking about using people, and that's what people are for, instead of befriending them, you're in trouble. And then this little vignette when she's with the Denistons. Everyone begins as a child by liking weather. You learn the art of disliking it as you grow up. Haven't you ever noticed it on a snowy day? The grown-ups are all going about with long faces. But look at the children and the dogs. They know what snow's made for. I'm sure I hated wet days as a child, said Jane. That's because the grown-ups kept you in, said Camilla. Any child loves rain if it's allowed to go out and paddle about in it. Presently, they left the unfenced road beyond Sandown and went bumping across grass and among trees and finally came to rest in a sort of little grassy bay with a fir thicket on one side and a group of beaches on the other. There were wet cobwebs and a rich autumnal smell all around them. Then all three sat together in the back of the car and there was some unstrapping of baskets and then sandwiches and a little flask of sherry and finally hot coffee and cigarettes. Jane was beginning to enjoy herself. And so you see in the midst of all this horror, there's this little scene of beauty and good food and fellowship and the beauty of nature. They're out of the concrete of the nice. Um, they are back in a place where there are trees and where there is a sense of seasons and the wonder of snow and weather and all of that, things that are not controlled by man. So then they begin to explain about St. Anne's. Our little household or company or society, or whatever you like to call it, is run by a Mr. Fisher King. You might or might not know his original name if I told it to you. He got a wound in his foot on his last journey, which won't heal. He had a married sister in India, a Mrs. Fisher King. She's just died and left him a large fortune on condition that he took the name. She was a remarkable woman in her way, a friend of the great native Christian mystic, whom you may have heard of, the Sura. And that's the point. The Sura had reason to believe that a great danger was hanging over the human race. And just before the end, just before he disappeared, he became convinced that it would actually come to a head in this island. So we see for the first time the explanation a little bit about the company and its leader, the Fisher King. We see Christ introduced for the first time, this Christian mystic, and this idea of the prophecy. So Mr. Fisher King was to collect a company around him to watch for this danger and to strike when it came. That's not quite right, Arthur said Cabela. He was told a company would in fact collect around him, and he was to be its head. And now, Mrs. Stedick, this is where you come in. The Sura said when the time came, we should find what he called a seer, a person with second sight. Not that we'd get a seer, Arthur, that a seer would turn up. Either we or the other side would get her. And it looks as if you were the seer. But please, said Jane, smiling, I don't want to be anything so exciting. No, said Denniston, it's rough luck on you. There was just the right amount of sympathy in his tone. 
Camilla turned to Jane and said, I gathered from Grace Arnwood, you weren't quite convinced you were a seer. I mean, you thought it might just be ordinary dreams. Do you still think that? It's all so strange and beastly, said Jane. She liked these people, but her habitual inner prompter was whispering, take care, don't get drawn in. Don't commit yourself to anything. You've got your own life to live. So you see here prophecy, gifts, um, that she's attracted to Christian fellowship without knowing what it is, but the danger, her pride and independence are keeping her from it. So Lewis is referring her probably to a guy named Sundar Singh, who we'll talk more about later, who was a famous Indian Christian uh, in the early 1920s. And then the Fisher King, if you've read about King Arthur or the Holy Grail or any of that, the Fisher King is the one who is the guardian of the Holy Grail. It's also a play on the Kingfisher, the bird, which is a symbol of Jesus. Um, there's a whole lot um, going on with that. And the wound in his heel, of course, is from the whole idea of Christ um, treading on the serpent. So, uh, and we're going to wrap up, don't worry. So, uh, this is the last little part here. So, oh, Mrs. Studdock, you must come in to the company, that is, you must. That means we're right on top of it now, don't you see? We've been wondering all the time exactly where the trouble's going to begin, and now your dream gives us a clue. You've seen something within a few miles of Edgestow. This is the murder that she saw. In fact, we're apparently in the thick of it already, whatever it is, and we can't move an inch without your help. You are our secret service, our eyes. It's all been arranged long before we were born. Don't spoil everything. Do join us. No, Cam, don't, said Denniston. The Pendragon, the head, I mean, wouldn't like us to do that. Mrs. Studdock must come in freely. And so there's a whole subtext here about God's eternal purposes, the Pendragon, which is another King Arthur term that we'll get to. And notice the contrast here, free will versus the coercion that's going on at the nice. And then this last little part um, that I already talked about is the um, part where Jane just gets furious that they want her to ask Mark's permission. So themes, lore of the inner ring, false notion of the real, doublespeak, lore of power, propaganda is just all over everywhere, calling evil good, unquestioned obedience, manipulation of the media, divide and conquer, the honest workman versus the educated class, refusal to take responsibility, the danger of unhealthy ambition, conspiracy, evil, coercive power, ambition's negative effect on friendship, the power of beauty and childlike wonder, the company, the Fisher King, Christ and prophecy, spiritual gifts, the appeal of Christian fellowship, God's purposes, free will, and prideful independence. So much just in this one chapter. So quickly, some practices of hope and wisdom. The first one, be alert to the danger of propaganda and seek diligently after truth. First John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We have a responsibility as Christians to seek after truth. Second, resist being conformed to this world when it calls evil good. Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then from Romans 1, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Resist being conformed when the world calls evil good. Third, lean deeply into Christian friendship and fellowship and the power of the believing community. 
This is so important in an age that is so narcissistic and independent. Listen to what Jesus says. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And just think about how Jesus loved us. What a huge command that is. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And devoted is a big, strong word. That means top priority. And fellowship here doesn't mean eating fried chicken in a church parlor. It means being deeply invested in relationship with other Christians. And fourth, embrace dependence on Christ and within the body of Christ. And do not fear being out of step with the culture. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then from Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And James, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We should not be surprised when the world wants to persecute us or when what we believe or value is not believed or valued by the world. And Jesus tells us that we should rejoice and be glad in those times because great is our reward in heaven. Now, I want to close with a little poem. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a kingfisher Uh, We don't have them in Charleston. Uh, But the kingfisher is one of the most beautiful birds in the world. And from ancient times, it has been a symbol of Jesus. And the great Christian poet wrote this poem about kingfishers and about how God made each one of us for a purpose. And that when we live that purpose out, there's a glorious beauty that results from that. So I would invite you to uh, listen and look at these words as I read them. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over ram and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being endures, each one dwells. Selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. And this is something that you will be able to read at leisure in the email. But part of what the poet is trying to get at here is that God made all of us and gave us amazing gifts. And when we use those gifts and we play as if for our Father who's listening for us, it's as if Christ himself is playing in every person, using the gifts for the betterment of the world and expressing beauty and truth and goodness. So on that note, let me say a prayer and we'll get. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this book. Lord, we thank you even for the parts of it that are dark, where we see propaganda and evil and misuse of creation and people using one another as steps in their own ambition. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to buy into the systems of the world that you would help us to be uh, innocent, that you would help us to not partake in the evil that surrounds us, but instead that we would lean into your word, that we would lean into fellowship, that we would lean into the love that you have for each of us, that we'd lean into the beauty and truth and goodness of the things of your kingdom, that we might glorify you through our lives. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Please meet someone you haven't met uh, before you go, and then we'll want to try to clear out um, so Ben can lock up the building. Thank you so much.